0: Hello and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw and I'm excited to say that after a little hiatus we have back with us Dr. Jacqueline Galvin who as all ACRAC listeners should know by now is the director of of the OB anesthesia fellowship at the University of Illinois in Chicago and a frequent guest on the show. Uh, Today we're going to discuss problems during pregnancy. This is going to be part one of a two-part mini-series on problems during pregnancy Uh, Jacqueline, thanks so much for coming back on the show.
1: Great. Thanks again for having me so much.
0: One thing I do want to point out to ACRAC listeners, if you haven't noticed already, you're going to see some really great comprehensive outlines popping up in the show notes for all of the episodes. They're coming little by little. But that is thanks to Brian Park, who's a med student, and he is doing this in his free time and doing a really fantastic job of it. So, Brian, you're doing awesome. Thank you so much. Check out Brian's uh, outlines as they start to pop up in the show notes. Uh, He's going back and doing all the old episodes, so it'll take him a while, but uh, I think they're really worthwhile to use. All right, so uh, let's jump right in, and let me ask you about um, kind of pre-viable obstetric conditions. So what kind of stuff can happen during pregnancy before uh, the fetus is viable uh, that we need to think about.
1: Exactly, so I'm gonna touch on three topics in this area including ectopic pregnancy, spontaneous and surgical abortions and gestational trophoblastic, trophoblastic disease. And we'll try to hit the highlights on um, the clinical scenarios an anesthesiologists might find themselves in and how we can help to assist with these particular situations. So, I think we'll begin with ectopic pregnancy, and that's where a fertilized egg implants outside of the endometrial lining of the uterus. The United States has a reported incidence of about 16 in 1,000 pregnancies. Um, Some risk factors that are notable, um, that are easy to obtain on a history and physical include uh, pelvic inflammatory disease, otherwise known as PID. Previous ectopic pregnancies, prior tubal surgeries, IUD utilization, and assisted reproductive technologies. Um, most of these topics that we'll find, of course, right, your favorite middle of the night uh, cases are going to be tubal, um, but of you no know, ectopics that are implanted in the cervix are by far the most lethal, but luckily the most rare, um, followed by ectopics in uterine scars and abdominal topics.
0: That's interesting, uh, Jackie. So so I d- wouldn't have guessed that the most lethal would be a cervical. Mm-hmm. Any idea why that is?
1: Yeah. So the reason why that is is because the cervix is obviously highly vascularized because of its role in, you know, female, uh, reproductive activities. Um, but also it doesn't have any muscle contractility. So once it bleeds, it's not bleeding until either of that is addressed surgically. So there's not a lot medically you can do and it, it doesn't have that, um, nice, uh, Um, it just bleeds a lot. Right. So (laughs) a lot of redundant uh, mechanisms to reduce bleeding aside from
0: surgery. Gotcha. So uh, it's interesting. Yeah. I guess I would have thought that the fallopian tube, uh, but I guess it's probably not as vascular as the cervix.
1: Correct. Yes.
0: Okay, great. That's interesting. Um, All right. So you said most of them are tubal cervical are the most lethal um, and then uh, other places that you can have them.
1: The other place that you can have them that are potentially disastrous would include uterine scar, um, tubules which have been described, I'm sorry, tubules, ectopics, and abdominal ectopics, which again, depending on where they implant, can be potentially catastrophic. Okay. Great. Um, so, we'll most often see these in our women of reproductive um, age, um, including those women from 35 even up into 44. However. Um, Again, catastrophic or lethal complications are most often seen in teenagers, and that's probably either to delayed, um, uh, delayed access to care or they just don't go see care uh, in a timely manner. Again, probably because of the teenage status and other, other things going on in their lives, so that's more often we see uh, more complications. Okay. Um, so our clinical signs we should look out for are right? abdominal pain, delayed menses, and vaginal bleeding. Um, we still have to remember there's other things that cause abdominal pain other things in um, age-bearing women that don't include topics, including things like kidney stones, appendicitis, ovarian torsion. So those do need to be ruled out first. In terms of our anesthetic management, I think this is Luckily, pretty bread and butter. If it's an unruptured ectopic, a general anesthetic for rapid sequence is usually fairly appropriate. Um, The anesthetic and surgical risks are low. But if there's significant bleeding, we do need to remember important things like good access and type-specific or O-negative blood for our women of reproductive age. They don't develop antibodies.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So going in, if you know a woman is coming in with an ectopic pregnancy that's not ruptured, Do you start with large-bore IV excess and blood-ready, or is that only if it's ruptured already?
1: Yeah, only if it's ruptured. If they're hemodynamically stable, it's unruptured. I think one good IV is completely appropriate, especially if they're not going to be tucking the arms. But certainly if it's ruptured or there's profound peritonitis, I'm definitely going to put really reliable excess um, in the upper extremities, or a nice EJ works really great, and of course, blood.
0: Okay, that sounds great. So what about um, if it's not an ectopic, but someone's coming in for an elective surgical abortion?
1: Great. And I just want to preface that this is uh, not to describe whether you should or should not do it. I'm just going to focus on um, anesthetic management. And the really, I think, question is, should we routinely be intubating? these pre-viable patients for surgical abortions. And of course, uh, I mean, appropriately so, uh, most providers are worried about the incidence of aspiration in pregnant patients, which is um, not not unfounded. Um, But luckily, that incidence is pretty rare. And most of the quoted numbers are from full-term pregnant women, not necessarily these uh, first and second trimester women. But um, with that uh, baseline set out. There's a couple of studies that looked at this question of what is the actual incidence of pulmonary aspiration and elective terminations with uh, um, sedation and anesthetic. Um, so uh, there was a recent study in anesthesia and anesthesia in 2016 of about 5,600 procedures under intravenous sedation with fentanyl, Versed, and probofol. And of these 5,600 patients, they of course found no incidence of pulmonary aspiration, Nobody had to be intubated or transferred to a hospital for anesthesia-related indications. Um, they did use Narcan about 0.2% of the patients, um, but was interestingly not more associated with our increased BMI patients, which can add another layer of complexity of whether sedation is appropriate or whether general anesthetic is appropriate. I do think it's important to know for this um, study, the subset of patients um, also had a paracervical block, so that certainly added to their anesthetic uh, completeness. Um, they were, of course, MPO. The vast majority of the patients were in the first trimester, um, and the average procedure time for the actual surgical component was only about eight minutes, so that's
0: fairly quick. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it may
1: not be widely applicable.
0: Now, Jackie, um, does, it, does it matter, you know, is there a difference if a woman is coming in at, you know, nine weeks versus 22 weeks or not?
1: That's a great question because most of the, the literature and the classic teaching suggests that about that 18 to 20 week mark or when the uterus is clearly gravid, that the potential for aspiration, we should become more concerned about it. So I think that's where some of these studies are getting at. You know, a few of them actually address those late uh, second trimester patients are, are they more at risk for aspiration than your early, like, you know, first trimester, less than 13-week patients. Okay. Um. So uh, this next um article that I looked at um, of about 6,200 patients for elective outpatient um, terminations under anesthesia of IV, propofol and fentanyl. Again, also found no um, incidence of pulmonary aspiration events or anesthesia events. However, they, um, and also there a small minority of patients were over 18 weeks and they excluded patients with a BMI of over 40. Okay. So again, not really answering the, the question fully. But these last two, um, hopefully we'll get to more, more of that. Um, so again, this other story is uh, a Canadian study um, that also included a paracervical block as part of their anesthetic. They had 19,000 procedural sedations and again, found no incidence of anesthesia related events or pulmonary aspiration events. Um, Again, most of the patients, of course, were in that uh, 5 to 18 weeks and very few over 18 weeks. Um, And then uh, lastly, um, another study from contraception in 2016 that did deep sedation, about 300 patients, Um, that had a little bit more uh, patients in the over the 24-week mark, or sorry, around that 24-week mark, again, found no incidence of pulmonary aspiration um, under deep sedation. And of the patients they did intubate, it was mainly for maternal indications uh, like preference, developmental delay, or increased risk of hemorrhage. So I think um, the bottom line, to summarize this, that we probably don't need to electively intubate all patients for elective surgical abortions. Where it's probably safe is your BMI's under 40s, your gestational weeks, probably up to 18 weeks, and of course, fasted patients that don't have medical comorbidities or obstetrical reasons for bleeding, like accretas, molar pregnancies, which we'll get into next, uh, HELP syndromes. Um, The parasympathetic adjunct is probably really useful um, and probably underutilized, where it may be safe to do sedation anesthesia, but not intubate, again, that gray zone of morbidly obese patients or patients with a gestational age over 20.
0: Okay. Now, so that's kind
1: of summarize.
0: Okay. Now, you know, if a woman at term, uh, you know, certainly we worry about aspiration. So there yes. must be a cutoff somewhere. We're just not sure where it is. And so it it's, sounds like clearly kind of, you know, Well, less than 20 weeks, kind of no question. And then, as you said, when you get into that 20, maybe the 23, 24, maybe we just don't quite know. It's probably okay. We just don't have great data. And then when you get closer to term, obviously the, the risk is increased.
1: Right. And actually, the more common scenarios where you'll find aspiration in pulmonary, uh, sorry, point aspiration in pregnant women that are term are emergency procedures, of course, non-fasted patients. And actually, during the intubation is actually the time when they're going to aspirate, especially when it's a difficult laryngoscopy. So I guess the question is, are you really saving these, especially preterm patients that are elective from aspiration, if the intubation is the thing that is most associated with intubation.
0: Right, interesting. Okay, so maybe I should, I overstated, and we shouldn't say that, that routine term pregnant women are necessarily at much higher risk.
1: Um, not necessarily, but that's certainly not to say that they should all have MACs for, for things, of right. course. MAC anesthetics, I mean.
0: Okay. So um, what about if it's not a, an elective abortion, but it's an intrauterine fetal demise? How does that change things?
1: Yeah, so um, that is the IUFD or intrauterine fetal demise is characterizing a fetal death at more than 20 weeks. Um, the patients that according to ACOG are more at risk are um, non-Hispanic African American women, patients with preexisting hypertension, diabetes, advanced maternal age, which is still identified as age greater than 35, obese patients. So where that sort of comes into play for our anesthesiologists, um, everyone kind of worries about DIC, and that's appropriate, but really your chance of DIC is about 10% after four weeks of a known IUFD, which most patients are presenting way earlier than that, um, but that's when your chance really increases. Um, patients characterized as undergoing a labor process with an IUFD is a um, Insufferably hard, physically and and psychologically. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Um, epidural analgesia should be made accessible to these patients during induction of labor, which is, according to ACOG, the preferred modality for delivery, um, even with patients that have a history of C-section. Um, and it would seem it would seem intuitive that maybe doing a section, a C-section, would just get it over with, for lack of a better word, um, but actually you find these patients have more pain and suffering afterwards, not only from the psychological suffering, but the physical pain of suffering for a, a C-section, so it may not be necessary. It, it's probably not the first-line treatment for, for delivery, and even for our repeat section patients, they probably should still try
0: to undergo a, a vaginal delivery if that's at all possible. Okay, and do they have, a? do women who have had um, a history of C-section have, an increased risk for needing a repeat C-section with an intrauterine fetal demise.
1: They do, but it's probably um, associated with other factors uh, such as maternal requests or obstetric preference. Okay. So they are at risk, but I think what the literature says they don't necessarily have to be at risk and should be offered a, a, a trial of vaginal labor first, because oftentimes they don't—they might not have to get to the full nine ten centimeters to deliver a preterm fetus.
0: Okay. Great. Now, you mentioned earlier when, uh, that molar pregnancy is uh, another thing that we, we should address, which I think falls under the kind of broader category of gestational trophoblastic disease. Tell me about that.
1: Great. So, um, gestational trophoblastic disease um, is really abnormal tissue that would normally form the placenta. Um, and there's actually two kind of broad subcategories. So, there's your hydatidiform moles um, and malignant uh, this. Gestational stational trophoblastic disease, which can turn to a neoplasia. So your moles um, are categorized as either partial or a full mole. So a partial mole um, sometimes has some elements of fetal parts, but it's often, as the vast majority, a non-viable pregnancy, and then a full mole, where there's just this abnormal tissue and, and no fetal part. Um, and that's the,
0: the opposite of what, I remember always as a med student thinking this is the opposite of what it sounds like, right? So. Uh, a partial mole, I mean, the way to yeah. remember it is a partial mole may have fetal parts and a right. complete mole does not, uh, but you, it's kind of the opposite of what it kind of seems like would make sense.
1: Exactly. Yeah, I shouldn't think about that way, but that is uh, a good way to think about it. Um, so they often present with your normal signs of, of pregnancy when you're delayed menses. They might have some vaginal bleeding, bleeding. Um, there's no fetal cardiac activity, the uterus might be abnormally large for the proposed gestational age, and there's marked elevation of your beta-HCG, so more than 100, 200 thousands. Um, it's also associated with hyperemesis, uh, pregnancy-induced hypertension, anemia in DIC. Um, it can uh, be associated with like hyperthyroid-like like picture, um, cardiopulmonary distress, and pulmonary hemorrhage. So things you should do to prepare for these patients for a eventual DNC or, or DNE in the main OR, of course, would be uh, CBC, coagulation studies, certainly should have type-specific blood if that's appropriate, uh, chest X-rays, and if the mom is RH negative, um, the mom should receive some program preoperative would be the most uh, appropriate time, but certainly whenever that can be addressed. Um, and then for uterine evacuation processes, um, some of the uh, authors suggest that we should avoid volatile anesthetics, as that can also abnormally uh, dis or cause uterine relaxation, and might contribute to more bleeding. So a by anesthetic may be useful. Um, of course, large bore access, uterotonics available, such as oxytocin, and, and blood products as appropriate.
0: Okay, um, so that is definitely. Um you know a lot to keep in mind there you want to yeah. be concerned about DIC so bleeding is is going to be a, a more important or more likely issue here you want to think about being ready for you know big bleeding with your access and uh, things to help as you said contract the uterus to try to clamp it down once that molar pregnancy is out uh, Correct. so that's that's definitely a lot of preparation needed for those
1: Yeah, and unlike the previous topic I was talking about where you can potentially consider um, a moderate anesthesia care for some terminations, this type of termination definitely should probably do general anesthesia.
0: Sounds good. All right. What about maternal systemic disease? How does that play in uh, to issues that happen during pregnancy?
1: Great. So um, a lot more women are presenting... For pregnancy with a lot more comorbidities um, as of late, especially in the United States. So I think uh, having a systemic way to evaluate them is uh, a good practice. So and this is, of course, very dense. So in this session, I'm going to focus on three areas of systemic disease, including autoimmune disorders, some endocrine disorders, and uh, heart disease, which, again, can be its own dissertation. But we'll try to stay focused on common things we might see.
0: Sounds good. So maybe let's start with lupus.
1: Yes, let's start with lupus. Um, So as probably all of your listeners know, it's a very widespread systemic disease that has antibodies against uh, nuclear cytoplasmic and cell membranes. It is more common in in women of childbearing age. So we will see some patients with this disease, Um, the medical management during the peripartum is uh, fairly routine, including. Please tell me if I'm saying this wrong, or I need to repronounce it. Hydrochloroquine, quin, quinin?
0: Is <laughs> it
1: Right. I never know how to say that one, but um, that uh, azathioprine uh, and some and prednisone. So in terms of the interaction between lupus and pregnancy, so its effect on pregnancy, it's unknown whether your lupus will worsen during pregnancy. Um, but the suggestion is that if you've had major active disease in the six months preceding conception, that there will likely be a disease flare during the pregnancy period. And depending on what your pre, so if you had, uh, um, sorry, if you had kidney uh, symptoms before pregnancy, you'll probably worsen during pregnancy. Right. Um, and in terms of the effect of the lupus on the pregnancy, um uh, what you really need to keep in mind is that a lot of these patients will need, you know, get a full-scale, you know, head-to-toe um, evaluation and assessment and realize that some other symptoms might overlap with other diseases or become acutely worse. Uh, so, for example, they might get cerebritis or seizures, which can overlap, uh, overlap uh, sort of, symptomatology with uh, preeclampsia. They get athletic. Uh, Accelerate atherosclerosis, so coronary disease may be an important part of their um, workup. Uh, nephritis, as we discussed, may become worse during pregnancy, so like baseline proteinuria um, or protein values may be appropriate. Um, adult respiratory distress, distress syndrome and hematologic disturbances may appear during pregnancy. Um, I want to touch base really quick that it's overlap with preeclampsia. The estimated incidence may be about 5 to 38 percent, again, because it's difficult to distinguish between preeclampsia and nephritis during pregnancy because of lupus. Um, Their overlapping symptoms include worsening hypertension, edema, edema, proteinuria, uh, renal dysfunction, and anemia or thrombocytopenia. Um, And the reason why it's important to distinguish between the two is because the the treatment options or treatment indications are different. So your preeclampsia should have uh, blood pressure control and magnesium therapy versus nephritis, they mean immunosuppressive therapy, so two different therapies. Uh, but to try to distinguish between the two, um, you could get some urinary sediment or casts and look for those, and that'd be more indicative of SLE or lupus flare rather than preeclampsia. Okay,
0: and yeah, there are some specific antibodies I think that can be tested for, anti-Smith antibodies, for example, that are more uh, in line with lupus.
1: Exactly. And for like complement levels. Your complement levels will go down during a lupus flare you know, compared to preeclamptic, they should not really have a change in their complement.
0: Great, all right. And then if a woman does have S L E uh or an S L E flare during pregnancy, how does it affect the fetus?
1: So the effect on fetus on the fetus um is not good. Um, So they have an increased rate of fetal loss, and that may be due to other coexisting diseases with it, such as antiphospholipid syndrome, which we'll discuss next, next, or if they have a high disease burden within their lupus symptomatologies, Uh, The fetus is also at risk for IUGR, prematurity, preterm delivery, and the C-section rate amongst pregnant patients with lupus has been reported to be as high as 40%, which is very high. Um, there also may be fetal congenital heart block due to the uh, uh, transfer of maternal antibodies across the placenta to the fetus. And those patients do need a you know, pre delivery assessment by your neonatologist and may need other uh, advanced care after delivery. So, certainly, delivering in a place
0: or an institution that can provide those services is important. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. And so, what kind of obstetric management do these patients need?
1: So, oftentimes they just need close surveillance. As we discussed, they probably need baseline levels of things um, such as urine protein, autoantibody screens, uh, looking for um, things such as antiphospholipid, um in lupus anticoagulants, complement levels. Um, some of these patients may be on thromboprophylaxis based on their presumed risk of thrombosis, which we'll discuss in a few slides. Um, and really, vaginal delivery is still preferred unless there's a maternal or fetal indication. Um, so what we need to do as anesthesiologists, again, a full head-to-toe assessment. We should take a baseline sense of their uh, seizure propensity or headaches to uh, distinguish it from other things that evolved during the labor and delivery process. And these patients may have some cardiac dysfunction. So up to 50% of lupus patients will develop some sort of cardiac dysfunction in their lifetime, such as... Um, uh, cardiomyopathy so we should try to have a heightened sense of awareness for that um, There are pulmonary manifestations uh, they get a pulmonary hypertension and some other things and uh, hematologic studies should be looked at prior to anorexial just to make sure they're not inappropriate for a anorexial technique
0: great all right that's really helpful what about other autoimmune disorders we hear a lot about for example antiphospholipid syndrome what do we need to think about about that
1: Great. Right. So what we think about that is there is a, a primary and a secondary antiphospholipid syndrome. For example, when it's associated with lupus, it's really a secondary phenomenon. Um, and it's associated with um, autoantibodies against cell membrane lipids. And it really confers a patient in to be a hypercoagulable state despite some of the terminology used. So for example, lupus anticoagulant, which is an auto, autoantibody under the spectrum of antiphospholipid syndrome is not actually an anticoagulant, it's a, uh, a laboratory artifact that artificially prolongs the PTT, for example. Okay. Um, so what happens is these uh, abnormal antibodies, they bind to phospholipids on some cell membranes and that can activate things like platelets um, and they ultimately abnormally form clots.
0: <clears throat> okay, so we need to worry about clotting in these patients. Correct. And how does um, how does their propensity to clot affect the pregnancy?
1: That's great. Uh, that's a great question. Rather sorry. Um, so what can happen? A lot of these patients can present with recurrent fetal loss, especially in the um, the later trimesters, the third trimester. So recurrent late fetal losses should alert somebody to the possibility of antiphospholipid syndrome, which is mostly related to chronic placental infarction. And in fact, before regular anticoagulation was instituted for these patients, the rate of fetal loss was up to 80% in prior to the 1970s, and it's down to about 10% of fetal loss now, which is a great market
0: improvement. Yeah, that's a huge improvement. Um, What's the... Sorry. No, sorry. Right. So how... Uh, When we think about this, what is the effect it has now in terms of the way we manage? You mentioned, you know, obviously, we're gonna wanna think about anticoagulation, so how do we do it?
1: Great. Um, So in terms of how we manage anticoagulation, so ACOG really has three kind of recommendations. So if there's a patient with recurrent, unexplained pregnancy loss, or history of vascular thrombosis that's not provoked, they should be worked up for antiphospholipid syndrome. If you have antiphospholipid syndrome, but no history of thrombosis, these patients should be on prophylactic anticoagulation throughout the pregnancy and up to six weeks postpartum. And if you have antiphospholipid syndrome and a history of a venous embolism, these patients are recommended recommended to be on full anticoagulation for up to six weeks postpartum.
0: And so, a couple questions: When when does that anticoagulation start? It starts as soon as they're known to be pregnant.
1: Correct. If they're on, if they have a positive antiphospholipid syndrome workup.
0: Okay, so as soon as they get pregnant uh, and or have a positive uh, workup, they start the anticoagulation. If, it's, um, if they have no thrombotic history, it's prophylactic dosing. If they have a thrombotic history, it's full anticoagulation. They continue it up through delivery and yeah. postpartum. Now, do they continue it without stopping if they're going to have a C-section?
1: Um, so that is a good question, and I'll partially address that next. But basically, you have to time your neuraxial with their anticoagulation and then time the restarting of their anticoagulation You know, at some point after your neuraxial has been placed. So that there needs to be close communication between the anesthesiologist and the obstetric team about when they're going to restart their anticoagulation.
0: Okay. And I guess alternatively, if you did uh, general anesthesia... Then uh, for a C-section, you wouldn't need to worry about it. From that standpoint, you'd have to talk to your obstetricians about whether they were comfortable doing the C-section on full anticoagulation or whether yes. they wanted some time off. Yes. What about
1: the, those situations? Sorry to interrupt you. It don't really present unless there's some like urgent maternal fetal indication where you really have to start uh, kind of weighing those risk, val- risk benefits.
0: Because usually you would be planning neuraxial, so you would stop the anticoagulation.
1: Correct. Yes, in like planning their induction. So if someone's on anticoagulation chronically for something like antiphospholipid or history of venous thromboembolism, in general, um, they would come in for an induction. You stop their anticoagulation at some some time, and they come in go to induction, you know, so on right. and so forth. Get their neuraxial deliver and then restart.
0: Okay. Now, what about the what do you use for anticoagulation in these patients?
1: Um, our institution uses low molecular weight heparin, so We use anoxaparin for ours. Um, some patients, inpatients, do get unfractionated heparin if they're, for example, in the antepartum service or awaiting a delivery plan. Um, I would not be able to speak to what other institutions use unless you know what yours uses. Um, I'm
0: pretty sure lovinox is is yep. going to be the most common, or enoxaparin yep. is going to be the most common.
1: Yeah, that's by far and away the most common.
0: Okay. Um, Now you mentioned we'd talk a little more about managing the um, potential for clotting. Uh, What are the guidelines around that that we should cover? Right.
1: So I I did want to make everyone aware that the Society of Obstetric Anesthesia and Perinatology, just this month, and anesthesia and analgesia. So this is uh, very recent. Came out with a consensus statement on patients undergoing anticoagulation during the labor process. Um, So if you haven't read it and are interested in obstetric anesthesia, you should read it. Um, Again, they're guidelines and not meant to prevent individual provider autonomy, but I thought it was interesting, just for example. um, At our institution, we would not wait, if a patient was on 5,000 subcube of unfractionated heparin, we would not wait any amount of time before placing a neuraxial. But now this new document suggests that you might want to wait um, four to six hours after your last dose of five thousand heparin sub Q before your neuraxial. So, for example, that's something that's new. And certainly, if you're in a non-elective situation, then you have to weigh the risk benefits of doing a neuraxial before the four to six hours versus not doing it and having to do a general, for example. Okay. Um, so I think the read is interesting, and it's it's a little too um, again dense to go through with this particular podcast. But um, I think it's a good uh, good read. And uh,
0: very, you know, appropriate for um, high-risk patient care. So okay. it's <laughs> Great. So it sounds like uh, some changes around how to manage patients, even if they're on what we would have considered, you know, something we didn't need to worry about, like just 5,000 BID of, of unfractionated heparin. And then I'm guessing similar to what we used to think, prophylactic lovinox or enoxaparin, we would wait 12 hours after a dose. And then full dose, we would wait 24 hours.
1: That's correct. And one of their new statements was for the anoxaparin in particular, that if you're in this intermediate dose, so you're more than 40 milligrams a day, um, or more than 30 BID, that there's no really recommended safe time interval between that 12 and 24 hours.
0: So if you want to be really safe, you have to wait 24 hours.
1: Yeah, if you want to be conservative, you wait the 24 hours probably.
0: Okay. Um, so you had mentioned we had also wanted to get into a little bit of some endocrine issues like thyroid issues. Yeah. <laughs> um, what comes? What What do we think? What What thyroid um, issues come up in pregnancy?
1: Um, so really, hyperthyroid is more common than hypothyroid. Um, and just for uh, like test taking purposes, those type of you know really uh, high yield questions. Um, right, the serum T four is going to be your major determinant of um, thyroid function. Um, and that your thyroxine-binding globulin increases during pregnancy, really because it lasts a little bit longer in terms of its half-life. Um, so because the um, thyroxine-binding globulin is, more, um, is increased, but your free T4 is the same, that uh, pregnancy is a euthyroid state, so it's not meant to be hyperthyroid. Um, hopefully everyone recognizes the symptoms, including nervousness, sweating, heat intolerance, tremors, hyperdynamic state. Um, the main methods of treatment during pregnancy are the same as a non pregnant state, so propylthiouracil PTU, methimazole. Um, thyroid storm in pregnancy can be uh, potentially catastrophic. Um, so the treatment with that is relatively the same. So cooling measures, good IV access, IV hydrations, even though they're hyperdynamic, they're usually intravascularly depleted, um, correction of our electrolytes and glucose. Um, aspirin is uh, safe to treat the increased temperature. Uh, propanolol is the preferred beta blocker of choice, and uh, dexamethasone is appropriate. Um, in terms of for the, the fetal interaction with preeclampsia and hyperthyroid, these patients are at risk for preterm labor, preeclampsia, IUFD, uh, non-reassuring fetal heart tone patterns. Which is interesting uh, is you if you treat the moms. Uh, untreated thyroid, usually the non-reassuring fe- fetal heart tone patterns will resolve, and so it's not necessarily an indication to run to the OR and deliver. You might want to treat the underlying thyroid or hyperthyroid state and then reassess the fetus.
0: Okay, that's really important to know. How about hypothyroidism?
1: So, hypothyroid, a little bit less involved, um, and actually these patients are at risk for chronic anovulation, so fertility is a little bit decreased. However, they're. Um, is association between hypothyroid, and increased fetal loss, again, preeclampsia, abruption, IUGR, um, and maternal hypothyroid, especially within the first seven to 20 weeks of gestation, can actually put the the fetus at risk for impaired neurologic development. Um, So those patients should be treated with levothyroxine as soon as that becomes
0: apparent. Okay, and what do we worry about um, in terms of anesthetic concerns?
1: We should be worried about or screen for things like myocardial dysfunction, coronary artery disease. They may be um, excessively sensitive to your induction agents if you're going to undergo a general anesthetic for some reason. And there's impaired response of the CNS, a hypoxia, and hypercarbia. So we just want to make sure we're doing things in a well-monitored setting for these patients.
0: Okay. So along the endocrine lines, uh, another thing we think about is pheochromocytoma. Uh, is that does that happen in pregnancy? And if so, what do we what do we need to worry about?
1: Yeah, so it does, but exceedingly exceedingly rare. So the quoted incidence is about point zero zero seven percent. However, why it's important is that the risk of maternal and fetal mortality if it's untreated during pregnancy is fairly high, um, about forty to fifty percent mortality rate. But if it's treated appropriately, um, that rate of mortality can be reduced to five to fifteen percent. So it's pretty promising. Um, The the difficult part of diagnosing it during pregnancy, because, again, it, it looks like so many other things. It looks like preeclampsia. It looks like uh, cardiomyopathy. Um, it looks like preexisting CNS, um, uh, hemorrhage, epi- uh, epilepsy, cocaine use, sepsis, thyroid storm, MH. So it mimics a lot of other things. And it's often not diagnosed until really postpartum, uh, unfortunately, if there unfortunately, is a, a maternal death. Okay. Um, Sorry, so uh, if, you can, if you're can, if you lucky enough to diagnose it um, with b- uh, before 24 weeks, really the um, management is the same, alpha blockade, blood pressure management, and then surgical resection, either by laparoscopic or open techniques before 24
0: weeks. And what happens if it's not found until after 24 weeks?
1: If it's not found until after, um, you want to do the same thing, so you want to still do alpha blockade and beta blockade to uh, normalize the pressures. However, it's a, it's a balance between um, causing a little bit of vasodilation in the mom, but not so much that there's uh, inadequate uteroplacental perfusion. So it's a, a balance between those two. Um, there's no preferred route of delivery. So vaginal or C-section with resection at the same time or delayed resection of the pheochromocytoma is appropriate. Um, for vaginal delivery, you probably certainly want to do it in um, in a area where you can monitor. You can have uh, invasive lines, probably an A-line, and definitely early epidural analgesia to offset those catechols. And then the recommendation or a, a way to do it may be to um, densen your epidural analgesia blockade at the second stage. So some of the agent like chloroprocaine is nice. You do an assisted forceps to uh, limit... Um, pushing, which can aggravate the pheochromocytoma and do something like forceps delivery um, instead of having the mom push like normal.
0: Okay. And what about cesarean delivery?
1: And then for um, C-section, so it's kind of a a blend between doing your normal C-section techniques and being ready to resect a pheochromocytoma. So I would recommend like pre-op, invasive, uh, central line arterial line, the slowly titrated noraxyl just to keep the patient very stable. Um, If you were gonna do a general, which in general versus epidural, there's no really uh, one technique that's uh, preferred, but you wanna minimize attempts at at laryngoscopy and have the patient very comfortable. Um, You wanna make sure you have your vasodilating agents, nitroprusside, nitroglycerin, magnesium, remifentanil, these type of things. Um, And really what's more important is executing a carefully thought out anesthetic rather than choosing one anesthetic
0: per se okay are there certain medications that you should avoid
1: so a lot of the books recommend avoiding sucks because of that histamine release Um, I would say it's a risk benefit versus airway or not if I'm in a Give someone, you know, fifty of rock. I want. I, hopefully, I can ventilate them, and they're not at risk for aspiration. Um, other medications that are recommended to avoid: morphine, metoclopramide, bank, leukocorticoids, and ketamine.
0: And are those because they can exacerbate the release of catechols from the tumor? Correct. Yes. Okay. Um, so, what about an, a much more common thing than a feocromatocytoma yeah, would be I, gestational I, diabetes? How do we I, manage that? What do we think about around that?
1: much more common. Um, Usually two designations. The type 1 gestational diabetes is adequately controlled with diet and lifestyle choices, and medication controlled is is type 2 gestational diabetes. So it's estimated that um, gestational diabetes complicates um, up to six to nine pregnancies, but unfortunately that rate is increasing with the especially U.S. obesity um, epidemic uh, the risk factors for gestational diabetes um, is race, advanced maternal age, obesity, history of gestational diabetes, um, cystic, sorry, ovarian disease. Um, the risks to the mom include development of preeclampsia, increased risk of C-section because of fetal indications, which I'll talk about next, um, and preterm labor and surgical site infections during things like C-section. Um, but really, for the, the fetus, they're at risk for neonatal hypoglycemia, right, because the mom's glucose transfers across the placenta to the fetus, the fetus makes increased insulin, and then once that maternal glucose is gone, the fetus has all this insulin and no glucose. Um, so they're at risk of neonatal hypoglycemia. Okay. Um, also, the fetus at risk for macrosomia, so depending on what book you read and what gestational age they are, between four and 500 grams, um, shoulder dystocia, birth trauma, and, and IUFD.
0: Four, four thousand 5,000 grams. Four thousand to five thousand
1: okay. grams. A so book you read, what mm-hmm. you know, statement you read, and what gestational age the, the patient is.
0: Okay, and then uh, this you said six to nine percent, right? Of pregnancies will will suffer from this. And then, am I right? I think what I remember from just probably thinking back to my third year of med school on OB here, but <laughs> is that uh, women who get gestational diabetes are at higher risk than the general population for, develop, for later developing actually type 2 diabetes.
1: That is, that is definitely correct. And other metabolic syndrome type things like chronic hypertension and stuff like that. So often it's not just a transient event in their life and then it's over. They often have long-term Lifestyle choices to, to consider. Okay, yeah, um, I think where we come into play as anesthesiologists, especially when you're alerted to a patient that has a macrosomic fetus or history of shoulder dystocia, um, certainly uh, in place labor um, labor epidural can be useful. Um, can be used if the patient, you know, for whatever reason, has to go for a C-section. So I often, if they don't want an epidural, I often will approach the patient with my anesthetic concerns and say, let's talk about this. And um, at least they know their options and why an epidural would be
0: beneficial to their delivery. Okay. Let's turn to maternal heart disease. Great. Uh, this is obviously a big topic these days. Um, what do we think about maternal heart disease when it comes to pregnancy?
1: Great. So um, why it's an important topic in today's care of pregnant women is one of the five leading causes of maternal death, and it's really gaining traction in that area, which is, again, not, not really a good thing. Um, it's associated with um, obese, parturians, um, African-American race, and uh, late or no prenatal care. And the reason why we're seeing more of these patients is because um, there's more of these metabolic syndrome uh, uh, women uh, that are becoming pregnant, and there's more women that are uh, making it to to, um, uh, to childbearing age, especially those with congenital heart disease, and older women with pre-existing comorbidities are often becoming more pregnant due to our assisted uh, reproductive uh, technology. So we are going to encounter this more as time goes on. Um, and the reason why there's such a sort of negative interaction is because the physiologic changes under pregnancy are often not congruent with, uh, with heart disease. So, um, for example, this is going to come up again in um, the next you know, topics here, that there's increase in blood volume, the maternal heart rate increases, stroke volume increases. O2 consumption increases, and there's decreased pulmonary reserve overall, so those uh, interactions sometimes don't really mesh well with certain
0: cardiovascular diseases. Okay. And so what specific diseases do we think of and uh, that can affect pregnancy?
1: Right. Some only, unfortunately, going to touch base on three. There are many, many more. Um, but one I'm going to focus on is fairly common, is supraventricular tachycardia, or SVT, from here on out. Um, And the reason why tachy dysrhythmias are common during pregnancy is because there's a hyperdynamic circulation, Um, there's changes in some um, ion conduction channels within the heart, there's increased atrial stretch because of the increased blood volume, there's increase in your end diastolic volume and changes in autonomic tone. So these patients are a little bit more susceptible to dysrhythmias. Um, SVT in particular is more common in some women with structural um, heart disease like ASD or VSD. Um, in SVT, um, the overall incidence is... Um, some papers suggest about it. 50% of women will have some sort of um, tachydysrhythmia or SVT during pregnancy, and that might be attributed to you just go and you'll go to the doctor more when you're pregnant because you're worried, right? So that may be why it seems more prevalent in, in pregnant patients.
0: And some of these, uh, some of that 50% is just ectopy, right? Like having some ectopic beats, PVCs. Yep. So this is not saying that 50% of pregnant women will have uh, SVT. It's saying that they'll have some abnormal beat, and like you said. Some of this is probably that people have as uh, people have PVCs, they're just not getting monitored at the time. So if you're pregnant and you're going in more and you're being put on a monitor more, right. they're going to catch those PVCs.
1: Exactly, exactly. Um, so questions you need to ask yourself when you see patients with an arrhythmia or for specifically SVT is: Is the mom hemodynamically stable? Is the fetus stable or is the fetus compromised? Is there any clear reason why they would have SVT? Um, and is treatment required immediately. So if it's uh, stable SVT in a um you can go ahead and try vagal maneuvers, a carotid massage and Valsalva. Um, but really um, adenosine six milligrams followed by 12 milligrams if it doesn't break is very appropriate. Um, An anticubital IV is helpful just because of the rapid degradation of adenosine and a other useful agent would be um, verapamil. Uh, for pregnant patients if it's unstable you still should consider synchronized cardioversion right in addition to expert consultation so you should not withhold electric therapy for pregnant patients is what i was wanting to bring awareness to all
0: right so uh that sounds that sounds great you got to distinguish between stable and unstable uh the Correct. big dis- the big kind of uh decision point there being whether to use electricity or not
1: right um
0: I okay and then um How about other maternal cardiac diseases that we want to cover?
1: Yeah, um, so next thing I want to cover is pulmonary hypertension, which is, again, is very complex. And so I want to hit the highlights just for um, this uh, particular purpose. But one of the reasons why it's important is because it's very poorly tolerated in pregnancy. It was a reported maternal mortality of about 36%. Um, So that is um, very concerning. Um, It's associated with IUGR and and fetal loss and and preterm delivery. And really the the problem is that the increasing cardiovascular demands of pregnancy really cannot be met with the the fixed vasoconstriction of the pulmonary uh, vasculature. Um, Especially in in the postpartum period, it's very poorly tolerated. Um, So in the first two trimesters, if you have very poor functional status, it's, it's a very negative prognostic fast factor, and then you have to consider whether um, therapeutic termination would be appropriate. Um, in terms of delivery and the postpartum period, so we get these fluid shifts, um, autotransfusion of blood that was previously going to the uterus is now back on the central circulation. You lose a protective vasodilatory effects, um, so it's really um, quite uh, unstable and concerning, really immediate delivery and, and postpartum. So um, our anesthetic goals are always right to avoid increasing pulmonary vascular resistance, um, which, uh, you know, summarize, we want to avoid hypoxemia, acidosis, hypercarbia, um, maintenance of intravascular volume, um, uh, maintenance of our systemic vascular resistance, and avoidance of myocardial uh, depression uh, during any sort of anesthetic.
0: Okay. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, and then uh, the other thing that I would add is probably uh, hypothermia, so really trying to yeah. avoid uh, hypothermia as well.
1: It's really important in, in obstetrics because I think, you know, turn the OR room temperature down for the surgeons, but don't really think about the, the fetus and the mom, so I, that's a good point. Thank you for, for bringing that up.
0: So what kind uh, of monitors do you want in these patients?
1: So ideally, if I had to design my own perfect, you know, anesthetic. I'd have an invasive central line for... um Cardioactive drugs and arterial line, ideally with cardiac output monitoring. And then a delivery planning will be what's again the optimal for the mom and for the baby. And certainly vaginal delivery and C-section have both been described. Um, for vaginal delivery, again, like Neuraxial anesthetic probably should be aggressively em- employed, um, a slowly titrated epidural that blocks that sympathetic tone that might negatively affect the pulmonary hypertension would be appropriate. And again, this concept of densening your block for the second stage where so the mom doesn't have to use the expulsive eff- uh, efforts increase her um, intrathoracic pressure, um, increase her oxygen consumption is really useful. So genting in the block, something like chloroprocaine, and allowing the obstetricians to do a controlled forceps delivery
0: would be useful. Okay. Now, when you say cardiac output monitoring, you're talking about the non-invasive cardiac output monitors like FlowTrack.
1: Um, if it was me, I'd do an arterial line and hook it up to a, yeah, like a FlowTrack.
0: Gotcha.
1: Uh, something along that line in the room and be there and, you know, watch it intermittently.
0: Now, so what about, so there's some centers, um, like ours that don't have access to those monitors. And so, um, the only way f- is, so I guess my question for you is how important is the cardiac output monitoring? If you, ha- if your only option was either a SWAN or a TEE, would you place those or would <laughs> you, uh, you know, kind of wait and see, or what would your cutoff there be?
1: Wow, that's a really hard question. Um, I have to be totally honest. I have very little experience with a swan. And then, of course, you do have to be worried about that theoretical risk of pulmonary artery rupture. Um, You could, I think, if you had a really good bedside ultrasonographer and a... Um, a cardiologist that could read a trans thoracic echo, that might be helpful, because your differential diagnosis of hypotension would be either still intravascular volume depletion, because maybe you were just too stingy with your fluids. You may write acute pulmonary vasoconstriction um, crisis, so you're just not getting blood flow across, and that's why you're hypotensive. Or maybe you're in acute right heart failure. So if you had that modality to sort of help you at least rule one amount or rule one of them in, that might be helpful if you didn't have cardiac output monitoring.
0: Right. So, I mean, I think the takeaway here is, you know, this has to be a decision that's going to be made in combination with the obstetricians and the anesthesiologists and your kind of whatever your protocol is. If you have a, a cardiac output monitor that works with your A-LIME, that's great. If you don't. Uh, you're probably going to take into account the severity of the pulmonary hypertension, the patient's symptoms, how worried you are, and decide whether you're going to use uh, a Swan or not, whether you're going to have a you know uh, TTE, or whether you're going to actually think about uh, you know putting this patient to sleep and using a TEE. So all of those are options, but you're just going to yeah. want to think very carefully about it.
1: Exactly, and kind um, of takeaways. All of this needs to be um, ideally be planned out in the the you know, pre-delivery period, like multi, multiple multidisciplinary meetings, I in, definitely involving a cardiologist or cardiac anesthesiologist would be useful as well, um, and being aware of those different changes that happen right after the delivery period, because that's when they're the most at risk for adverse events.
0: Okay, And do these patients, are there any alterations in the drugs you might use to treat uh, these patients?
1: Yeah, so probably have on hand, especially, you know, in the OR for a cesarean delivery, you probably want are sort of inotropic agents, uh, dobutamine, um, milrinone might be useful to dilate the pulmonary vasculature, especially if it's a primary pulmonary hypertension. Um, uh, sorry, um, inhaled uh, nitric oxide if your patient's under general. Um, those things might be useful. And then one thing you'd want to avoid is really avoid methyl organovine, which is a second-line neurotonic. You would not want to give that in the setting of ubernatin.
0: Okay. And then uh, I think the last of the three that you were going yep. to talk about is going to be coronary artery disease and ischemic heart disease in uh, maternal patients. Probably not the most common thing uh, in childbearing age women, but certainly can happen. What do we uh, think about that?
1: Agreed, so um, not very common. The quoted incidence of myocardial infarction from ischemic heart disease is about three to six cases per 100,000 in the US, so not very common. Um, But again, because of the aforementioned regions, such as uh, women that are uh, advanced maternal age or have already pre-existing coronary disease, obesity, hypertension, diabetes, uh, pregnancy due to repro- reproductive uh, endopro- reproductive technologies or women with drug abuse, this may be coming up again more common in the future. And again, the reason why the interaction is so unfavorable is because there's a higher metabolic rate during pregnancy, um, there's all the hemodynamic changes we discussed during the labor and the delivery process that might negatively affect a, a fixed lesion um, in coronary artery disease, and that's really why the interaction is so um needs to be sort of well thought out and planned. So it's kind of the same repeat of the things we've been talking about, really good multidisciplinary meeting ahead of front, awareness of anticoagulation agents used by the mom if that's available, Um, evaluation of recent imaging and cardiac function. And I would argue an epidural during labor is probably a must. And um, again, doing these uh, assisted second stage deliveries to minimize the maternal expulsive efforts and the associated increase in due consumption
0: would probably be very favorable. Okay, great. Um, What about, should these patients get a cesarean delivery?
1: Not necessarily, and again, I mean, especially I think if they're multiparous and favorable for vaginal delivery, they probably should. And C-section doesn't necessarily protect against those adverse effects. And in fact, I think the peripartum still increases to the degree that it would be unfavorable. So you really have to have a really good maternal or fetal indication for for a C-section. But it's kind of those same tenants, good access. Um, you know, a good way to monitor the blood pressure, whether it's invasive or non-invasive arterial line, a nice titratable neuraxial, and probably things like uh, prophylactic, um, you know, beta blockers to maintain a heart rate in a
0: reasonable range um, would be useful. Great. All right. Anything we left out, Jacqueline?
1: <laughs> well, uh, certainly there's lots to cover in all these subjects, but hopefully I hit some highlights and important uh, um, management strategies, and that was really my goal for today.
0: Great, I think you did a fantastic job. Thank you so much, <laughs> and uh, we'll talk to you soon to do part two of this topic.
1: That'd be great. Thanks a lot. Thanks, bye.
0: All right, another fantastic episode with uh, Jacqueline Galvet. So, uh, check out the website, acrac.com, ACCRAC.com. You can leave a comment, let us know. How do you manage these obstetric patients when they come with these various diseases? Uh, we can all learn from what you have to say. And of course, you can always reach me at ACRAC at ACRAC.com. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment on a, and a rating. Uh, it really helps others find the show when they're searching for an anesthesia podcast. It helps ACRAC come up in their results. If you would like to support the making of the show, please go to patreon.com slash acrac that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash a-c-c-r-a-c where you can become a patron of the show even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge it does make a big difference and we really appreciate it thank you so much all right that's it for today thanks for listening have a wonderful thanksgiving for the acrac podcast and dr jacqueline galvin i'm jed wolpaw remember What you're doing out there every day is really important and valued.